Hello. Today our readings are from、uh, the middle of Matthew chapter twenty-two, and all of Deuteronomy chapter thirty-four. Let's start with a dramatized reading from Matthew twenty-two. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, "You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage; they will be like the angels in heaven." But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, if you read the whole of Matthew 22, you will find that this is the middle encounter that Jesus has in what seems like a relentless series of attacks. They were. Out to get him to prove that、uh, his teaching has flaws in it and that he's not who he says he is. So,、um, in my mind, this reminds me of Space Invaders. I don't know if you ever saw the game Space Invaders, played the game Space Invaders, but you had a, a series of aliens flying in spaceships across the top, dropping bombs. There are a number of buildings, and you are sheltering beneath them. And your job is to dive out, shoot a missile upwards, destroy an alien, and get back under a building. But all the time, the aliens are dropping their bombs, and the buildings are being destroyed, and the aliens are getting closer. It is a relentless attack, which you are not, in the end, going to win. And I just feel that's how. It must have felt like a little bit for Jesus that you know he just deals with the Herodians in verses fifteen to twenty-two, and along come the Sadducees, and he is dealing with them in this passage. And if you read on, you'll see after he's finished this encounter, the Pharisees say, "Right, guys, it's our turn. Let's get in there." And Jesus is. Being fed or, or being、um, fired, these different thoughts. So, if if what you're saying is true, then 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 this, and if what you're saying is true, then then what about this? That's what it's like as you read through Matthew chapter twenty-two, and we're just looking at the middle section. Last week it was the Herodians. This week it's the Sadducees, and we're told they didn't believe in the resurrection, and some would say. That made them very sad, you see. But I certainly wouldn't say that. And as they come along, they say, "Okay, then. So if there is life after death, come on, Jesus. You know it doesn't make sense. If there's life after death, then what about this? There was this family of seven brothers, 
and the first one married, but he died without children. Now, Moses, the law of Moses says that if that happens, then the next brother has to come on and take the bride and produce a child to carry on his brother's name. Well, now, there was this family, and they had seven brothers, and the first one married, but he died without children. So the next one says, well, it's my job. And he comes along and he takes the bride, but he marries without having produced a child for his older brother as well. And so the next one comes in. Uh, has he got one child to produce or two? But in any case, he dies before any children. And the next, and the next, and the next. And in the end, all seven have had this woman as their wife and all seven have died so here's the thing, Jesus, in heaven, whose wife will she be? And Jesus, basically, I suspect he sighed because he basically said, look, you don't really understand what you're talking about. Don't you know that marriage is for this world only? In modern marriage services, we still say till death do you part. It's only up to death. And at the point of death, the marriage is annulled. So what you're saying doesn't work because in in heaven, we're not going to be married. We're not going to be given to be married, at least not with each other, because the whole point, of course, of Jesus' teaching is that his bride is the entire body of believers, the church, the the um, the ones who have given their lives to him are the bride of Christ. Together in heaven, we are his bride. And earthly marriage is a picture of the heavenly marriage of Jesus and his bride. And we understand that relationship by looking at earthly marriages. There will be fabulous relationships in heaven, Jesus is implying first and foremost with me and then with each other, but it won't be like earthly marriage. So that's his first little missile shooting up, but then he sends in his killer blow because he says, look, you don't believe in life after death. You don't believe in the resurrection. You don't believe in eternity. Well, didn't God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And who did he say that to? Oh, he said it to Moses first. And and actually, we as Jews, we still talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, don't we? Well, here's the thing. God isn't a God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And when God spoke to Moses and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was using his name, I am, Yahweh. He was talking about his permanence but he was implying it and applying it also to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God spoke of Abraham in the present tense to Moses. He spoke of Isaac in the present tense to Moses. He spoke of Jacob in the present tense to Moses. And we still talk about them in the present tense. They're alive. Where? They're alive in the resurrection. That was his defeating blow because... They've relied everything on what Moses said. And here is Moses writing, talking about Abraham being alive, Isaac being alive, Jacob being alive. They had no more they could get Jesus with. The killer blow 
fired, their argument destroyed, and off they go. And then the next line, <laughs> the Pharisees are in. But that's not for this week. What Jesus was basically doing was destroying their ridiculous arguments. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul writes, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And Paul's saying what Jesus did, really. He's saying, you, as we know God's story, as we know the teaching of the word, we can look at these trap arguments, which take some of the truth, but then miss a bit. And we can say, no, you're wrong because... And in Colossians 2, it says Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and having done so, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. Now, that's talking about the spiritual powers. It's talking about uh, the devil and, and the demons, but it's also just talking about disarming those arguments that come along. So Jesus has completely destroyed the Sadducees' argument. But the crux here was really uh, the interface between the old covenant set up by Moses and the new covenant that Jesus was establishing. You see, they come in and say, you are not following the law of Moses and we're going to trap you. And Jesus showed them that everything he did was consistent with the law of Moses. So that brings Moses into the picture. And we're going to listen now to David Suchet reading uh, Deuteronomy chapter 34. Why on earth have we got this reading? Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah opposite Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. 
for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Well, have you ever read anything of the life of Moses? Have you read through Exodus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or Leviticus and and just thought about what it must have been like for Moses, because I think it was pretty relentless for him too. He was also playing space invaders, if you'll pardon me for saying it, because in if you read it through, you'll see the people came to Moses moaning. And Moses sought God and said, what do we do about this? And God provided an answer. And that was great. But then the people came to Moses moaning and got Moses sought God and said, what do we do about this? And God provided an answer. And that was fine. But then the people came to Moses moaning. And it was just all the time there was this constant dealing with petty squabbles between tribes and between the big things like we don't like this food. We haven't got any food. We haven't got any water. And there's a very significant moment in Moses's life, which is in Numbers chapter 20, where they didn't have any water. And it sort of mirrors a previous moment where uh, God had said, OK, well, strike this rock and there will be water. But this is a second occasion. And on this occasion, God says to Moses, take your staff and speak to the rock and tell the rock to provide water. So Moses goes up to the rock, but he is, and we can sympathize with Moses. We, we must, given how relentless it has been, we must know that he was pretty fed up with these people on occasions. And on this occasion, he is a little bit angry. And instead of speaking to the rock, he takes his staff and he speaks in anger and uh, calls the people a rebellious bunch. And he then takes his staff and he hits the rock twice, which wasn't what God had told him to do. Well, you have to empathize with him. But because of it, God says, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So the context of Deuteronomy 34 is that Moses knew he was not going to be the one to take them into the promised land. But God's love for Moses was great. We may fail in what we do, but that doesn't stop God from loving us. And Moses was given the opportunity to see this land that he had been leading the people towards and that God had promised. He'd promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There'd been a whole hiatus period where they'd gone into Egypt with Joseph and um, initially been well there, but then they'd been taken into slavery and mistreated. And for 400 years, they had been in that position. And now they have been led out. They've come through the Red Sea. They've wandered the wilderness for 40 years because the people that came out moaned and complained and did not believe. And God said, you will not enter the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. And so the next generation has risen up and they're still moaning. 
and Moses strikes the rock. But now he's led them to the borders of the promised land. And God says, you cannot go any further. But I want you to see what this has all been about. I want you to see what I have for my people, for your people. And that's the passage that we've just read in Deuteronomy chapter 34. And then Moses is taken by God and buried by God. And he doesn't enter the promised land. Well, at least not yet. Because we know in the Gospels, he comes and stands with Jesus in the promised land. You see, Jesus gets him there. And that's actually what happens also for the people of Israel. Because who was it that led the people into the promised land? There are quite a few types of Jesus in the Old Testament. What that means is there are stories in the Old Testament where we can see a shadow of what Jesus will do. And this whole Moses not getting into the promised land is actually one of those shadows. Because who follows Moses? Well, we know it's Joshua. But Joshua is the anglicized version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. The same name that Mary was told to give her child by Gabriel when he said, you will call him Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. I used to wonder, well, why not you will call him Algernon because he will save his people from their sins? From their sins. What, what on earth does that name mean? And most of us have names which don't mean anything to our ears. Uh, that's not so true with the ladies. There's prudence. There's grace. Uh, those names, we know what they mean. But for men, most of us, and for most women, most of us have names which we don't know actually what they mean. For instance, they are lost in the mists of time. The old Gaelic name Donald meant king of the world. Names lost in the mist of time. And actually, this word Yeshua isn't just a name. It was a Hebrew word, like grace is an English word. And grace is the name of, uh, of many ladies, many women. Yeshua simply means savior or salvation, actually. So Mary was told you will call his name salvation because he will save his people from their sins and joshua in the old testament is the same word it's yeshua we've just anglicized it yeshua salvation so the person who followed moses to take them into the promised land was called salvation he wasn't the same person as jesus he had the same name and jesus is the one who will take us into eternity and when Moses appeared in the transfiguration on that mountain alongside Elijah with Jesus Moses was at last in the promised land but how because Yeshua had brought him there salvation had brought him there and what we learn from this is the law represented by Moses can only get you so far it is salvation that takes you the rest of the way. Jesus, Yeshua, opens the eyes of those who would believe 
and provides the way in to the promised land of eternal life. Paul says this in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Moses did not get the people all the way to the promised land. They needed Yeshua, Joshua. The law cannot get the Sadducees or us into eternal life with God. We need Yeshua, the Saviour, Jesus. The Old Testament will give you a view of the land as Moses had. The New Testament will show you the one who is the way, the truth and the life. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living.